0: There's a contradiction at the root of our society. The myth of rugged individualism, the image of the solo, self-sufficient person, is often actually reinforced by sanctioned sameness, a fear of wild, raw, beautiful life, of the vastness of difference. We get reduced to replicated genders, uncurious, narrow thinking, and stifled love. Today we talk with Alok Manan about gender, but more than that, we talk about living honestly and openly, celebrating our bodies and brilliance, and unleashing love in every encounter. Alok is a writer, artist, performer, with work that explores trauma, belonging, and the human condition. They are the author of Beyond the Gender Binary, Femme in Public, and Your Wound, My Garden. We really hope you enjoy this conversation. I'm so grateful that we get to be in conversation today. Alok, thank you for saying yes to this podcast and to this conversation. Welcome.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: So this podcast is finding our way. And the question that we're holding in this podcast is basically, what do we need to know to face into this moment, the unknown of this moment? And we have brought together thinkers, artists, political organizers, all kinds of people that we feel like have some element, some piece of the puzzle and helps us find our way forward in this moment. And so I begin every conversation with this question of how would you define where we are just from your vantage point, from your work? Where, where are we? What do you see as you look around?
1: Hmm. I see fear, fear that has become so calcified People think it's their identity. I see people who mistake dissociation as personality and armor as a body. I see how that fear leads to so much distrust and division and separation. I see a lot of torment and anguish and loneliness that's not allowed to surface because people pretend as if it's not there. I see people playing pretend.
0: I really feel that. And um, I guess I wonder if you might say more about, like, what's the history of this fear? How did it come into being?
1: I mean, there's so many histories that animate it, but the one that I'll describe right now is the history of the individual, which for me is already always a ghost story how we came to see ourselves as separate from one another, from an ecology, from an interconnected sense of being, and how shocked we are continually by that natural interconnectivity, like with a pandemic, the surprise that we all breathe the same air, like with a war, the surprise that energy is an interconnected economy, So what's happening over there also happens over here. I think what the story of the individual is, is a fantasy, a fable, a fiction that we tell over and over again, that it's possible to have a self that's not in relation, one, but then two, that separation itself is the story that's told. The more that I write and think and feel, the more I realized How the separation between me and you, the separation between man and woman, the separation between all of these kinds of arbitrary categories and distinctions, that's the culprit. So it's the history of how we've come to see ourselves as severed. And how that came to be, how that was inaugurated, right, was through various violent conquests and subjugations of indigenous people, black people, and other racialized people and through the superimposition of a kind of Western psyche. So often when people talk about, you know, imperialism, we forget that it also impacts the ways that we perceive the world. So for me as an artist, I guess I'm always trying to shift the modes of perception to actually say that what we've been taught to notice, what we've been taught to elevate to the status of real we have to question all those things and instead notice that kind of undercurrent of our mutual imbrication
0: there's so much there that i want to wade into but before we kind of go into those waters i'm curious i found out that you are also from texas and i am a trans kid from texas too i grew up in texas in a town called grand prairie and I remember years ago I was teaching and someone I was teaching with said, how do you come from a place like that? And I thought, in a way, I'm exactly what emerges from a place like that in that I didn't have any, I'm not going to say I didn't have any, but I didn't have many models or because of how strange I was in that place. There weren't a lot of people I was looking to as though they were the models for who I was going to be. And in a way, I say I found God in, in my hiding place. Being so alone, I was able to kind of see things differently or see people more as they were or how they were scrambling to become something legible. And that's my experience of growing up as a kid in Texas. I had to do a lot of healing work to figure out how to express myself, et cetera. But my question to you is, a, you know, I'm sure we had similar and also very different experiences growing up in Texas. How did you come to some of these questions or how did you come to this work of shifting the frame or living as you are in in that context in particular i'm curious
1: you know texas is really on my mind today with the news around governor abbott persecuting trans kids in texas and i was thinking about what i wanted to say because it feels important to say something as a trans person from Texas. And I just don't think people understand that the psychological toll of being invisibilized as a young person, that's a wound that stays with you for the rest of your life. The thing is that our brain doesn't just contain memory. It is memory. And so what my understanding of trauma is, is that the things that I went through growing up, my brain doesn't really perceive them as the past. Every time I'm traumatized, I'm that person again, that person who is fearing for my life, who has no one who will protect them or understand them, who's constantly anticipating danger and danger there not being a metaphor. And so I found myself actually realizing I'm not just feeling empathy for trans and gender nonconforming young people in Texas, I'm feeling empathy for all trans and gender nonconforming people who have to do the kind of footwork and choreography to live in a world that is designed to disappear us. Because the goal has always been the eradication of trans and gender nonconforming expression. And so for me as a young person, the reframe was paramount because I had to find a way to justify breathing and a world that said that I shouldn't be there. So the reframe came from when they call me faggot, maybe on the other side there's something glamorous or worthy or dynamic or magnificent about faggotry. And I don't know what that is yet, because <laughs> as a young person I, had, I didn't know any people who could teach me what that was. But I had to believe that maybe there was something redeemable in it And that idea of finding something redeemable in yourself in a world that says that you shouldn't, that was the reframe that actually allowed me to develop a more robust sense of compassion for all people because I realized that there's something redeemable in everyone.
0: I want to ask another question that I I actually didn't intend to ask, but it's something that I feel alive in me, um, in my own life, and also as you talk. I've seen you offer so much compassion. I see you offer compassion to people that are not offering you compassion. I see that um, in what you share on social media. I want to know more about this practice for you, about this practice of compassion. But I also want to know about the effort and the cost and what it costs you if it does, if you articulate it that way. I'm curious.
1: Compassion continues to save my life and actually it feels like it fills me. I feel like the cost was actually when I was dwelling on the toxicity, when I was a receptacle for malice, and then when I freed myself of that, and I said, you don't get, you don't get to contaminate the world I'm building in my heart and in my friendships. There's only room for peace here for inner peace, I became free in a way that I didn't think was possible. And it's strange to me because I feel like compassion often gets framed as benevolence for the other, but I want to reframe it as kindness for the self, and I want to reframe that the other and the self are not separate. The work that I'm trying to do now around compassion that feels even more difficult than forgiveness for people who are cruel to me is forgiveness for me being cruel to me that is the is the hardest mm-hmm. compassion work oh yeah because I'm I'm so mean so mean to myself and I berate myself and I tell myself that I should be perfect and I can't make mistakes and when I do make mistakes I feel irredeemable So I see the contradiction of me preaching redemption of the other and not being able to extend that same courtesy to myself. So the work that I'm doing around compassion that feels the hardest right now is not even just, I think the basic threshold is when we say we have to forgive ourselves for the things that we had to do to survive. But I want to push us further. It's not just what we had to do to survive. It's what we had to do to get by. Mm
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: Like it, the the barometer should not just be being alive. <laughs> right. That's not compassionate. Compassionate. <laughs> Compassion should be like, hey, you you did what you had to do to make what you thought was a good life at that time. Forgive because you didn't have access to the knowledge, to the relationships, to mm-hmm. the care that you do now.
0: There's such a, a power in what you're saying about forgiving ourselves for the way the ways that we treat each other and I was just thinking about this thing that you're saying about what we almost adopt or allow so that we can move forward the things that I had to absorb about other people's perceptions of me or their standards or who they felt did and did not belong the way that I absorbed things ingested them and carry that out on myself even to this day and the the practice of Forgiving ourselves for the ways that we treat ourselves is just such a transformative. I mean, there's really alchemy in those words for me. I feel it for what opens up, what kind of energy opens up when we're able to do that.
1: Hmm. Yeah, the story that I used to tell about growing up in Texas was one of there were bullies. There were people who were mean to me. But I think the more transformative story that I'm telling now is those bullies became me. And I have to take ownership of my own life because the way that I've taught to observe myself is through their lens, not a liberatory lens. So what that looks like is, every time I see a video of myself, I say, oh my God, I'm ugly. I say, why is my lip not moving like that? I say, oh my God, like how embarrassing it is to have a face. And I have to sit with that and be like, I'm 30 years old, and I still sound (laughs) like what people told me when I was 10 or 11. That's not acceptable. So how do I get there? How I get there is I tell my friends, I say, I'm noticing how mean I am to myself. And my friends say to me, but you're beautiful, can't you see it? And I say, I can't. And so Then I began to realize I can't replace the outside bully with the outside lover. It's Mm. me. It's me Mm -hmm. who has to do this. Mm -hmm. And so what that practice for me is looking like now is, is literally returning to the basics, looking in front of the mirror, being like, I have a face. One. Two, I am breathing. Three, I am alive. Because growing up in Texas meant dissociation, meant I'm still having imposter syndrome for being alive. And I need to convince myself not only that I'm here, but that I'm worthy of being here.
0: Wow, that's powerful. Absolutely. Um, I want to talk and, and maybe there's a, a kind of initial question, or I, I want you to kind of share about what you think gender is doing to our lives or how it's playing out in our lives in this moment and what's possible for us. And, then I, and I have another question to, to follow that. But if you could just start us there.
1: Hmm. Gender is separating us from meaning and connection and truth. And I think this is where the history piece becomes really important. Gender as we know it was forged in the context of 19th century conquest. What it did is it stripped the mystical, spiritual, communal, and collective understandings of gender. And it mechanized and utilized our bodies in the service of reproducing violence and empire. And so the journey of transition that the world sees in me is that I went from being assigned male to birth to being trans feminine. but that's not the true transition. The true transition was I went from being a body to a soul. Transness for me was chiefly and fundamentally about reconnecting with my spirituality, reconnecting with ancestry and ecology, being able to recognize that my body is part of a divine continuum and is precious and sacred, being able to see the magic of gender, not just the mechanism and machinery of it. So the work that I'm doing to transcend the gender binary is not merely so that we can acknowledge and include non-binary people, create a third category or another more options to pick. The work that I'm trying to do is actually to say, how did we normalize, not just normalize, but romanticize a world that told us this is who you should be forever? That's not a world I'm interested in being in. The world I'm interested in being is one that asks, show me what you wanna be, Experiment, figure it out, manifest and femifest, let me witness your continual becoming, transition as a mode of continual becoming, without destination, maybe even finding our way.
0: I love that because it also, you know, I think so much of how gender is imposed on us has to do with our utility inside of this particular paradigm, Western colonial paradigm. It's like who you get to be has so much to do with your use here. And when you speak about what's possible, I feel myself as so much more than the way that my use has been prescribed or outlined. That I get to explore myself, that there's a relationship waiting for me there. It's really, it brings me alive the way you talk about it. And the way I experience my own gender feels so aligned with that. But I think that there's, we miss that. Are we Useful Are we tools or do we get to be alive?
1: Mm, you make me want to dance in my chair. <laughs> Let's do it. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's the truth is that we've been taught that love is use, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And so what actually transness in its most poetic, prophetic role is a love letter to the world that says love is not use, it's need. Hmm. It's interconnectivity, it's care. And that's why I think people are so vehemently opposed to the emergence of transness and and specifically gender nonconformity and gender fluidity because they don't think that they're worthy of that kind of love because they are defending, as the late Bell Hooks taught us, a definition of love that romanticizes that their parents and their churches and their schools had the right to tell them who they were trans people. We say, no, they didn't. And that's too heartbreaking to hold for a lot of people. But this is why in my work now, my compass for 2022 was I have to, I have to, I have to have the compassion to break my own heart.
0: Mm. Mm.
1: Because, The story that I was told of what love was, was not true. The story I was told of who I am is not true. And it's devastating because I'm grieving that sense of stability and coherence. But the only way that we can grow is through pain.
0: (laughs) I'm laughing because I love it. Yes. Yes. (sighs) I I had a question for you about love practice and this piece around breaking your own heart or allowing your heart to be broken this is how we grow or maybe the way that we grow it just feels absolutely um revelatory for me i'm a new parent and so I'm, i'm feeling you know how do i love this being in a way that allows them to reveal who they are to me and not me kind of imposing as i see them emerging and I guess I wonder if you can say more, even just a little bit more about love. And maybe, you know, you put this word in what you just said. You said the word need. Mm-hmm. And I feel like need is one of these words that we are afraid to say, especially in relationship to one another. I need you. Mm-hmm. I need you. That's, that's almost harder, I think, for many of us to say than I love you. Mm-hmm. So I wonder if you can talk more about love or need or, or this inter relationality, this interdependence, this intimacy, if you have something to say about that.
1: Love is the only thing I have something to say about these days. (laughs) (laughs) I have done a complete 180. If 10 years ago, you had told me that a loke would be out here talking about love, I would have laughed. I used to live in the country of cynicism. I used to say, that's just, that's just a lie. It's a fantasy. What's real is pain and anguish and torment. I felt like discussions of love detracted from the material realities of inequality and injustice. And now I look back and I'm like, well, that's actually because I didn't think I was worthy of love and I had never felt it because the only way I had been loved was through what you were suggesting was use. But then I met queer people. I I really believe friendship is the answer to most of the existential questions in the world. And my friends, they loved me in a way that I had never been loved. My friends came back when I thought no one would. My friends returned. My friends bore witness to how stupid and how much tomfoolery and how much self-hatred and ignorance I had and returned. And I needed to be witness I think we all do. We just keep on going to the wrong places for that validation. But that's why I'm saying friendship is the answer. What if friendship is the everyday practice of articulating a need and having it met? So for me, what love actually is, is not cocooning people and trying to protect them from pain. Because that's what my parents did. They lied to me about the world. They said that it was wonderful and easy Mm. because they wanted to keep me safe and then when that world it wasn't easy i felt like i couldn't tell them as a young trans kid in texas because that would betray the fantasy that they were building yeah that this world was happy and that wasn't love Mm. my parents didn't create a space where i could say i'm getting hurt and i'm hurt and i'm scared and I still have this back and forth with my mom over and over again. I was seven years old when I told her I was queer and I didn't know what the word really meant, but I knew I was different because I had dreams of, of becoming different animals or species or asking what would have life been if I was on Pluto or Mars. I didn't fit in this world, so I read so many books because I needed to travel to other ones and my mom, she didn't get curious with me because she couldn't puncture that fantasy that she was going to keep me safe, but the way that we keep people safe is not by lying to them. It's by being honest that the world is brittle and callous and crude and being honest that we'll be here anyways.
0: And honest that you can be loved. Yeah. You can be loved as an emerging being. Yeah. I I think if I'd been taught that, a lot of things would have been different. I didn't know that piece that you shared about friendship being the answer to most existential questions that is everything <laughs> that is absolutely everything and you know one of the things we wanted to talk about on this season of the podcast was friendship and what the practice of friendship looks like what friendship can be how even our concept of friendship can be so narrowed and how much intimacy and connection is allowable in a friendship and if there's anything more you want to say about maybe it's a queering friendship or how you've learned friendship over time and, and how you really see it, I think it would help a lot of us to reshape how we're thinking about or holding our friendships.
1: You know, friendship is the most important creative work that I do, and it will never be elevated as such, and that doesn't matter. When people tell my biography, they have the audacity to say alok is but I want to put an asterisk there and be like Alok and their friends are becoming. Everything I am is the result of the conversations, the slumber parties, the phone calls, the email exchanges, the text threads, the critiques, the breakdown, the dinner parties, the lunch dates of me and my friends. My entire identity is being remade and reforged in their love continually. And it just irritates me that on Wikipedia pages and when we die, people will say, our partner was, survived by. And I say, list all my friends there too. I say in every photo of me at every funeral, put a group of me with my girls because I'm only alive because they they gave me the hope to be. And so I'm fighting for friendship and that's a political project for me. It began as a young kid in Texas who said, okay, there's no room for me in traditional families. There's no room for me in traditional romance. No one will love someone like me. So I learned how to make friends to keep me safe and to build a network and community and family. So it began from trauma, but like many things, The ways that we survive trauma has the potential to become a superpower, and it did. And so everywhere I went, everywhere I lived, I followed up. I said, let's get lunch, and I meant it. I refused small talk. I was honest that my heart was broken, and I was confused, and I had a lot of questions. And then people respond like mirror neurons, and they say, my heart is broken, and I have questions, and it feels like you can breathe again that you can say we're so much more complex and multidimensional than an instagram photo or post or status or avatar we are humans and so we became messy and delicate humans together and that's the work i've been doing for the past decade trying so badly to show people that love is not only possible it's concrete it's just that we've been looking in the wrong places why is every Hollywood movie and pop song teaching us to run into fire when there's the best medicine sitting right here alongside us. Hmm.
0: You know, our first uh, episode ever was with Sonya Renee Taylor, and we had a conversation about self love because so much of her work is about radical self love. And I shared a story about, you know, I used to be a therapist and I assigned someone that I was working with a practice that I'd done with myself, which was to sing Whitney Houston songs to myself. Hmm. And because I couldn't find any songs that expressed any kind of quote unquote unconditional love to oneself. But there were so many songs that were like, no matter what you do, I'm gonna be there (laughs) Mm -hmm. to someone else. And as you're sharing this, I think there's something really similar there's very few songs where we extend that kind of love to ourselves and it really was a a magical thing to do it to sing songs to myself in that way to love myself in that way but there's also very few songs where we sing to our friends that way Mm
1: -hmm.
0: or we sing to our friends with a really voluminous kind of love like i see you and i'll be there um there's maybe a few but as you're sharing this i'm like where are the celebrations in this moment of this kind of Friendship or the celebration of belonging Mm -hmm. To a crew or to your folks or to your girls. It's like We don't do that as much as I think it might serve us to to bask in that love
1: Mm -hmm. And that's one of the tragedies of queerness is that we have the chance to reevaluate all the meaning making and value hierarchies of a heteronormative world and yet the hegemony of romance we so easily align and subscribe to look i'm not saying abolish romantic love that's fine do you but what i'm saying is democratize love Mm -hmm. love the earth love the people around you love everyone to just apportion love within the confines of romance is not liberatory The purpose of love is to love so expansively and vehemently that you can connect with everyone. I mean, I am going to sound so gay right now, but (laughs) here we are, (laughs) somatics. Sometimes I start crying when I think about how much I love strangers. I love living in New York City because I get to bask in the aura of strangers. And I peer into people's lives and I'm like, you must be going through some hard shit. And the fact that you're out here looking this amazing, like walking and being and like eating ice cream, like I'm so freaking proud of you. That's right. And at every show that I do, I, I end it with just a love letter to my audience. And I'm just like, I just want to let you know, like I'm rooting for you. And if you ever feel like you can't do it, or like, no one cares, I care. And there's going to be some multicolored freak somewhere in the world rooting for you, because I, I am. And, and I feel like the way we resist violence is not just through diagnosing it and giving evidence of it, but actually countering it with love. So as someone who's so street harassed, I started to think about what is the opposite of street harassment? It's not just anti-violence. That's a meager articulation of what I need. It's, it's public love. And so now I try to practice public love, to normalize giving compliments. Hey, that idea was really magnificent. Thank you. The way that you're expressing this is so helpful. You're a genius. I try to find ways to bring that because compliments actually reveal so much more about the people giving them than the people receiving them. Are we brave enough to compliment each other?
0: I feel like there's a there's a practice. I mean, you're you're articulating a practice that I just want people to hear and hold in this conversation. It's like how can we amplify or increase that expressive love when we don't need anything, nobody's asking for it. How can you just let it out cuz I I think we see each other shine. I see people around me shine all the time. I'm like, "Wow, you're stunning. Wow, you are yourself. Wow, you are doing your thing." And what would it take for me to say it? It takes nothing. It actually, like you were saying earlier, it gives something to me to articulate that, to say, wow, there's such beauty in your words, Alok. There's such beauty in your being. It's such a gift what you're sharing with us. And I'm saying this to you. It's such an embodied awakening, and I'm grateful.
1: Thank you. I was saying to you that like 10 years ago, I would have scoffed at my public <laughs> love, love preaching, but... Here's what I realized. I began talking about armor, right? And for me, my core, my spiritual core is deep earnesty. I'm an extremely earnest, compassionate, curious, loving person. And because of what I had to grow up with, I shut that out. And I defaulted into fierce diva bitch queen who didn't need anyone else who could strut down the street with a beard and a miniskirt and a five-inch heel and screw the world, because I'm me. And I did that shtick for a long time, and then my body revealed my bluff, and I developed chronic pain. And as I entered the chronic pain world and started learning about the mind-body connection and how trauma manifests as physical pain, I started to really realize, oh. I was mistaking my armor as my personality. I was betraying, self-betraying, my own truth and purpose and rock, which is to give love, not to give critique, or to give critique in a way that's loving, not about destruction, right? Mm Because there's a difference. And so now, as I'm focusing on my healing, both physically, mentally, spiritually, and all of them, because they're the same, Mm the only thing that's working is love. (laughs) Like when I'm mean or when I'm like, why am I having a bad pain flare up or why can't I be more productive, regenerative? That doesn't do anything. That's
0: right, that's right.
1: (laughs) But the only thing that gets my body to actually be there for me is when I'm like, thank you. So what I'm saying then is that it begins at home and what home is, is our relationship with ourself and our bodies, our body self. That's what fashion means to me, like celebrating the luxury of my body, saying, the world might not see you yet, but I see you, and I'm going to adorn you like an altar, and I'm going to respect you, and I'm so grateful to have you. It's about practicing that intimate love, then that reverberates like concentric circles or like rings in a tree. It expands. And the more that I love myself, the more that I love everyone. And so now people who I used to think I could never have a conversation with or that I would ideologically oppose or were on the other quote inside, side, now I'm like, I could totally go out to hot chocolate with them. (laughs) Oat milk because I'm lactose intolerant. Same. And I could totally look at them in the eyes and I could say, I love you. I might not agree with you. I might be opposed to everything you're doing in the world. But I know in your core, you are fundamentally good. You got lost. And the reason you got lost is because someone hurt you and you had nowhere to put that pain. So you mistook hurting other people as healing yourself. It's not. I see your bluff.
0: Ooh. Ooh. That's it. That's it right there. I feel what you're saying in the way that you're working in relationship, friendships and relationships, the love of strangers, I feel that the way you're working, the way your love is working, and I'm wondering, it just came to me, but I'm wondering, how do you think about lineage, or your relationship to ancestors or past, or your relationship to young people or future? Do you see your, your work across time in that way?
1: Hmm. Yeah, I believe my ancestors were not people who shared my blood, but were people who shared my loneliness.
0: Mm.
1: When I read about people like the queen of disco, Sylvester from the 70s, I just think about how, how it probably felt for them to go home after a show. And I feel that same punch in my gut of being like, will you love me when I'm not fabulous? And so Ancestry for me is about connecting through emotion, which is the universal grammar. I may not speak your language. I may not understand your cultural references. I may not get the names of the towns that you're from, but through pain, I can relate to you. And that's why I'm a poet is you were saying to me earlier, feelings are coming first not words Mm -hmm. my job on this earth as a poet is to take those feelings and to build a kind of architecture with them and to create a container for an emotion package it and share it with other people and the reason i'm a poet is because poetry taught me through metaphor that everything's interconnected
0: Mm -hmm. what poets do you love or have taught you about love
1: I mean, of course, always and forever, Audrey Lorde, mm-hmm. um, who was really foundational to me in trying to understand art and poetry as shifting culture, not just commenting on it. Then Ocean Vuong is always a lighthouse for me. And every time I, I read one of his poems, I'm just like, there's a hook in my throat and it's, it's pulling me to the ground to listen to it. And then I have to say I have a very expansive idea of what poetry is, and that kind of confuses people, because people tend to think poetry is just, like, stanza and things that call itself poems, but that's not, for me, where poetry lives. Poetry is not just a genre, it's a way of being. And so I see poetry in people's outfits and how they construct sentences and how they speak. I think you're speaking in poems today on this podcast. When I said earlier that the work is about shifting the modes of perception, maybe the work is about seeing that poetry is the natural orientation of the universe and that every time we speak and we write and we communicate and we express, maybe we should try to think about, is this poetic? Meaning, is it about making more beauty in the world? And I think that's what I want to do with my life and my work is ask, am I writing poems? I want to make sure that I'm doing justice to being a living poem.
0: Beautiful. Alok, I really wanna thank you. I wanna thank you for sharing so generously today. I, I want to thank you for bringing your poetry to this place. Um, thank you, truly.
1: And Prentice, I really wanna thank you for your continually and unfurling genius. Everything that you're producing in the world is so palpable and immediate and its own quiet revolution and it's an honor to learn from and alongside you
0: thank you so much finding our way is produced and edited by eddie hemphill co-production and visual design by devon delania and assistant editing by miranda luis please make sure to rate subscribe and review wherever it is that you listen to this podcast you can also find us on instagram at finding our way podcast or email us with questions, suggestions, or feedback at findingourwaypod at gmail.com. You can also help sustain this podcast by becoming one of our Patreon subscribers. You can find us on Patreon at Finding Our Way Podcast. Thank you so much for listening to Finding Our Way.